Welcome to the Primate Cast. I'm your host, Chris Martin. And I'm Andrew McIntosh. And today we're going to do something a little bit different than what we normally do on the podcast. Yeah, so we decided it was about time to wrap up our year and a half plus um, and do a bit of a review. I guess a year and a half in review. And to do that, we decided to involve some students here at the Primate Research Institute of Kyoto University. Yeah, so we asked eight students from PRI to listen to the podcast and find a segment of one that they really liked and bring it to us. And those segments we will feature today on the show. So rather than being totally self-gratifying and telling you all what we thought were the best moments of the podcast, we asked, we decided to outsource that a little bit. But it also gives um, you know, the listeners a chance to see what some of the students here at PRI are doing um, in the way that they can introduce themselves as along, along with the clips that they, they thought were quite interesting. Right, so we divided their clips into two shows and today's will be the first show with a focus on conservation and local development. Yeah, and so we're going to start off the show by kind of talking about our own, not talking about showing you, presenting you our own personal favorites when it came to conservation-related issues and development sustainability. And that was our very fortunate interview with Dr. Jane Goodall, Mm -hmm. who was visiting the Primate Research Institute uh, late last year. That's right. And so we're going to just play a clip here uh, for Jane, then we'll get into the student uh, selections, and then at the end we'll come back with kind of a nice overview uh, back from the Jane podcast as well. Right, and uh, I think we should just point out that one of the reasons we really like this clip from Jane is that she has some advice for students on how to get involved in conservation. Yeah, exactly, including her own kind of cathartic moment when she realized how important that actually was, both for for science, but as well as just for the world in general. Mm -hmm. So here we go with Jane. And at what point did it become apparent to you that in addition to the scientific study and understanding the species, that there was also a great need for conservation and spreading that information around Mm. to a global audience? It was a kind of boom moment. It was a conference in Chicago way back when. uh, Actually, I'm sure that's the first time I met Dr. Matsuzawa because he came over with his brand new information about eye. And... And uh, we had a session at this Understanding Chimpanzees conference on, on conservation. And it was completely shocking. It was utterly shocking, like all the way on every study site across Africa, forests disappearing, chimps caught in snares, and the beginning of the bushmeat trade, the commercial hunting of wild animals for food. And we also had a, a session of secretly filmed video from medical research labs, from training of circus chimps and you know uh, by this time I had my PhD I had the life I dreamed of as a child I was out in the field I was analyzing data writing some stuff building up a research center it was totally the ideal life and I just came out as an activist Mm. I don't remember making any conscious decision it was just okay I've had the chimps have given me all this now I've got to try and do something for them you know, and then I began traveling in Africa to the range countries, talking to NGOs on the ground, researchers, tried to get up to some, you know, like the Minister of the Environment, or usually it was a first lady, you could seldom get to the president. And um, it, was, it was during that that I realized, you know, more and more about the problems faced by the Africans and the poverty and the, and the disease and the lack of education and it became pretty obvious to me that if we can't improve the lives of the people living around the wilderness areas that we can't conservation will never really work 
And so we started our Takari program. So what do you see the role of the young primatologist, for example? Well, I suppose the young primatologist who's really interested in a scientific career had better go for that first, but they're going to be pushed up against conservation all the time mm-hmm. because almost everywhere you go now there are threats to the chimpanzees or other primates, so it's hard to avoid. But, uh, you know, first things first, get your degree, get a, get a name, get a recognition, and then maybe it'll be a bit easier to... To, to do something for conservation. Okay, so now we're going to get into our student selections. Yeah, and so the way this is going to work uh, is that we sat down with, with the students that we had and got them to talk about first their research interests, secondly how they got into primatology and why they ended up here at the Primate Research Institute of Kyoto University, and then finally about their selection. So we asked things like why, uh, why they chose that selection, what it means to them, and why they think it's important. Our first student is Lucy Rigai. She's a first-year doctoral candidate in the section on social systems evolution. My research interests are sexual behaviors and how females can advertise their fertile phase and ovulation. So we know that there is different type of cues and signals like behavioral signals, olfactory cues, uh, auditory signal like copulation calls, and visual signal like color and sexual swelling. But still, we don't know how it works together if there are links, if there is some chronological things. We don't know yet. So I'm just very interested about that. And I studied that in olive baboons, and now I'm going to do that in Japanese macaques. So I never, I never wanted to be a primatologist. It's not something I wanted. It just, I made choice, and now I'm here, and I kind of enjoy this. I really love monkeys and watching them, and I can't I don't think I can do something different. So I'm just, yeah, enjoying. So I chose the interview with uh, Dr. Nishia because uh, usually when we talk about fieldwork and data collection, we just talk about scientific facts. We don't talk about life experience. And in this talk, it was so amazing. Like there is this war in Congo, you have to leave, you came back, you have to stay because you have to protect the camp and the monkeys. And I don't know, it was just so, so amazing. Like he was so motivated and passionate on this part of his life because it's not just fieldwork, it's a big part of your life. And I don't know, I'm kind of impressed about those kind of people and it perfectly reflects how I feel, how I feel now about fieldwork. I want to go because I never done. Because it's something you just want to do, live with monkeys and just like a big part of your life, a big experience, but also it's so scary and many bad things can happen, but at the end you just want to go back and it just, we are just passionate. Okay, so the section, podcast section that Lucy chose was from our interview with Dr. Tomoaki Nishihara, who's, who's of the Wildlife Conservation Society and has done a lot of work um, for a number of years in Central Africa for conservation of great apes and other species in the ecosystems there. and. It was really nice for us here um, when we when we started the student podcast section or uh, selections. We didn't know, you know, which areas of podcasts they would gravitate towards. But this, you know, conservation issues were ended up being one of the more important topics that they came up with. Mm-hmm. And so, in this section, uh, Dr. Nishihara is going to be talking about his experiences in, in Central Africa and how he was basically stuck. Um, you know, dealing with the civil war and, you know, trying to protect the environment, but also his, you know, students that he had involved in projects there uh, for the Wildlife Conservation Society. And uh, 
yeah, it's just really, he's a very impassioned guy. So I hope that comes through in this clip. When the war started, you know, people said this war is not really big, big issues. You know, you can stay in Brazil and you can go back, go back to the forest. But actually the, the war, they started um, so crazy. And then, and then I was uh, with uh, WCS people, those, uh, these uh, American, but it was interesting to see how the French military going to evacuate people. You know, French people is a priority. Yes. <laughs> American, Japanese, later. <laughs> now, but luckily, we had a, the last evacuate airplane um, to, to go to Gabon. But unfortunately, at that time, uh, I left my Congolese student in the forest. So I needed to go back to, to Nobarendoki somehow. Mm-hmm. But Japanese embassy people in Gabon said you can't go there. Mm-hmm. But I refused. Sorry, I have to go back. And then so through Cameroon, um, I went back to Nobarendoki to first to pick up Congolese student to to get him back to his family areas. And then Mike Fay, my previous boss, decided. Um, I should stay in the base camp wow. alone. And all the other white people, experts and researchers already evacuated. I don't know why Mike Fay told me that, but I said, no problem. Um, because we knew that if nobody there, you know, military people coming um, to, to break down base camp and store, steal all food and fuel and beers, and, right. and they are going to the forest in the international park to kill animals. Um, yeah. So somebody should stay. So actually, I, I stayed there more than six months with the uh, Congolese respon- responsible. Uh, and then sometime military came. But they were so kind. Um, okay. As soon as I started speaking local language, uh-huh. uh, they were happy about that. So they forget about, you know, um, chasing, chasing me. <laughs> wasn't, wasn't it frightening though before just sort of waiting no they, they are not frightening me they explained to me you know we were here to protect you oh I see so oh, wow. yeah and then yeah, of course they asked money you know to pay so but sure. we, we, we agreed you know no problem we can pay um, so actually some military stayed with us um, uh, it was not comfortable but yeah there was no way yeah. and so our next student is a second year master's student named Hikaru Wakamori and she's in the section of evolutionary morphology I study about tails of primates, especially macaques, and I'm interested in the tail length. Many mammals have tails, but primates are a group that has both tailed and no-tailed species. Macaques have a different tail length between species, from very short ones to longer than their body length. I use a skeletal specimens to be a measure and a behavior observation to study about the difference of the length of the tail and features of each species. The reason I got interested in primatology is I like animals. I love to visit zoos and aquariums since I was a little child and I got interested to wild animals so I started to think about the wildlife and the environment. Then I realized about the human and animal conflict or habitat damage by human activities. After that, conservation of wildlife become a big topic for me. Primates distribute in rich forest, mainly in tropical area, and those forests 
also have many species of other animals. So studying primatology is one answer for studying about mammals living in the forest, and it's a one step to make a one step to think more about conservation of wildlife. And that's why I chose Dr. Steve Ross. His talk is about conservation in zoo in U.S. Zoo is the nearest place for people to know about wildlife, so I was interested what he thinks about the role of the zoo in conservation. Okay, Hikaru chose a segment from the podcast of Dr. Steve Ross, who is the director of the Lester E. Fisher Center uh, of Great Apes at Lincoln Park Zoo. Yeah, that was really cool when we had him on the podcast. Um, he was here visiting Japan for for some collaborative work, I guess, with with people at PRI, who often comes to visit. And uh, Steve's really great because, so he's been doing a lot of work through Lincoln Park Zoo to kind of uh, bridge zoos and and basically species living in the wild through kind of awareness and conservation programs. As well as kind of an on-site cognitive laboratory at, this, at the zoo, which is uh, very interesting. And he's also going to have a big role in organizing IPS 2016 in Chicago. Yeah, that's right. That'll be a really cool conference. Hopefully one at which we'll have a nice booth for the primate cast. <laughs> that would be nice. Showcase. Yeah. But so the, Hikaru made some good points about how zoos can be a nice place where people can go and learn about animals uh, and then maybe apply that to their understanding of, of their conservation status, for example. And so Steve's talking in this clip specifically about where he begins specifically with the uh, problems associated with public perception of conservation status of animals that they typically see in zoos or or in advertisements. That's right. So here's the clip from Steve. Again, we knew very early on sort of the issues that were at play there. We knew that when people saw chimpanzees on TV that they didn't perceive them the same way that, say, the three of us would perceive chimpanzees. Mm -hmm. But there was no uh, quantifiable evidence of this. So we took on that problem by by doing a number of surveys, um, the last of which um, that we've published used a um, experimental design in which we had uh, used sort of Photoshop to alter different photographs of the same chimpanzee to put a human being beside them or to put them in different settings, whether it's a zoo setting or a wild setting or um, in an office building. And using this sort of paradigm, we were able to sort of tease out what the different effects of different images of chimpanzees were. And we were able to um, relate very quickly, actually the, the results were, were very clear, that simply having a person next to a chimpanzee, standing next to them in, in free space, not only made people think that eh, chimpanzees might make good pets, um, but also made them think that they weren't endangered in the wild. And this is something I think a lot of us have sort of suspected, but it was nice to get that empirical evidence of that exact effect. So now when we talk about the use of chimpanzees in entertainment, in the United States and elsewhere in the world, there's not only this um, argument that's based on animal welfare and how those chimps are treated, but also in terms of conservation, that these things are actually have an effect on wild chimpanzees. If you don't think they're in danger, why would you possibly support a conservation organization? I mean, if you look at the the way the, the data reads, mm -hmm. that emotional connection is certainly just washed out by this overwhelming feeling. They might like them, but they don't think they're in danger. Right. So even though... Um, we did ask questions of affect as well. We asked how they felt about chimpanzees, and they were no more likely to think that the chimpanzee in the picture was happy or not. Right. Um, so that's unchanged. But when we ask them whether they're in danger or not, oh, no, they're perfectly safe. Why? The, the thing we hear often from, uh, from the general public is, what, if they're in danger, they wouldn't be in commercials. 
That's a very overwhelming sentiment when you talk to the general public, and that's the sort of thing that we're combating. Our next student selection continues on with issues surrounding Central Africa. Sayuri Takeshita is a doctoral candidate here at the Kyoto University, and she's in also in the section of social systems evolution, and she's going to be introducing herself and talking about what she liked on the podcast. My general interests include primate endocrinology, social behavior, and conservation biology. And currently, my study uses non-invasive methods of hormone measurement to investigate hormone behavior relationship and the physiological response to environmental change in Japanese macaques. Originally, I became interested in primatology during my undergrad studies in veterinary medicine when I was invited to a project about healthy evaluation of owl monkeys. And by that time, I noticed that despite the richness of primate species in Brazil, there is little information about their biology and there is an increasing list of endangered species. On the other hand, Japan has a strong influence on primatology. And for this reason, I came to Japan to get my degree and my plan is to return to Brazil after my PhD to work on conservation of neotropical primates. I chose this podcast of Dr. Janet Nekoni interview because I think it was very interesting. Interesting, and she talked about the interchange of knowledge between the researchers and the local people. It shows that this work has an impact not only on conservation but on education, which can be helpful to the development of the local community. And she motivates me to think in other benefits I could extract from my study besides the main goals as a contribution to society. So the clip that Sayori chose was from our podcast interview with Dr. Janet Nakoni, who's a GIS specialist at the University of Maryland. Yeah, Janet's been here to PRI a couple of times in the last few years to work with Dr. Furichi. Um, they overlap in their field sites in Democratic Republic of the Congo. And her work is really interesting, uh, as Sayori mentioned, and as you'll see in this clip, because she really does try to involve the local communities and the people and thinks that's a necessary way forward in uh, conservation and education. So here's Janet. The work that we're doing with the African Wildlife Foundation, we're recognized by the DRC government in 2009 as a pilot model for national level land use planning okay. in the country. So they have now recognized the need for land use plans. And so the participatory mapping is working with those local communities to secure land management rights. Oh, okay. Um, so that they can be formally recognized by the government of the DRC. It sounds like just from the name of it, though, that you're letting them kind of do the mapping. We are. It's participatory mapping. So they kind of collect the data for you, and then you're the one that facilitates it and puts the database and does the analysis. Exactly. We ask them to, um, to draw, basically to... Um, to translate their own local knowledge of mm -hmm. their own geography of where right. they live onto a sheet of paper. Sometimes they begin drawing in the dirt or in the oh, sand, wow. but eventually <clears throat> the map is transferred to a very large format piece of paper. And the map, you know, we guide them through the process because the villagers have never really seen a map or done mapping in the past. So we have to guide them through the process and ask them for um, you know, prompt them for drawing what they what they see in the what, how how they define their village, the features that define mm. their village geographically. So we ask them, for example, to draw the road 
that their village is located on. And we ask for the geographic um, direction of that road, whether it's north, south, east, or west. And then usually we ask them next to place the location of the chief's house on the map. And that sort of helps them to understand the relationship of all of the other features in relationship to the... the it sounds kind house. of like a cognitive experiment. It is a cognitive reason experiment. reason about spatial in relations. In a lot of ways, yeah. yeah. And then we ask them questions about, um, well, maybe where is your community farm? Uh, where is your cemetery? Okay. And from there, and we also ask about locations of major rivers and locations of features that we might be able to see on a satellite image. So those are rivers, maybe hills, um, any kind of feature, topo topographical feature. And so then as a team, we transcribe um, all of that local knowledge that's been um, conveyed on paper to a satellite image. And we do that in the presence of the um, villagers. Actually, we have them do it. Oh, cool. So first, what we have to do is explain what they are seeing in the satellite image and explain the, um, how the satellite image is captured, because they have never really thought about um, a satellite in the sky taking pictures of the Earth before. And with these satellite images, you see it a lot of different colors due to the, um, the wave bands. And so we explain what they are seeing in the colors. And often, um, you can see the locations of the agricultural fields. Um, they're very easy to distinguish because the spectral response of the uh, bare ground is very different from the spectral response of the vegetative forest. So we can st start seeing the um, boundaries between the forest and the agricultural areas. And the goal of the mapping is actually for them to start delineating the boundary of where they historically do their agricultural activities, which we cannot understand from just looking at a satellite image. So their local knowledge is really key in, um, in actually formulating, formulating those boundaries and delineating them. And once those boundaries are, are, formalized, are delineated, we are working with the government of the Democratic Republic of the Congo to formalize those boundaries and to allow those people to now have land management rights um, of those, those lands. So following Sayuri, a second student also chose Dr. Janet Nakuni in her podcast selection. That student is Saiko Torada of the Section of Ecology and Conservation I am interested in habitat selectivity for endangered animal species and the mechanism to determine that. It is important to understand the habitat requirements of target species and species interaction in the habitat for preventing species extinction and biodiversity loss. Now I am studying about African great apes ranging patterns as a first step. For example, a selection of vegetation type and its seasonal variation associated with food abundance. I worked JICAR, which is Japan International Cooperation Agency, before becoming a PhD student, and my goal is to work towards sustainable ecosystems, especially in Africa. Great apes in Africa are very charismatic, but they are also very endangered. They need a huge area and can be a target of illegal hunting. 
Also, they may, maybe have an important ecological role in tropical rainforest. So, it's important to set conservation goals based on good science. That's why I chose a part of the interview of Dr. Janet Nakoni, because I totally agree with the importance of capacity building of local people and her respectful attitude to local knowledge. She is a specialist of GIS analysis and also worked for a conservation project for a long time. I want to be a researcher with a specialty that can make a better world by working with people for not only primates but also sustainable ecosystems. Janet is a great example of such a researcher. So building on the selection by Sayuri, it was really nice that Saigo kind of took it one step further and really talked about the need for capacity building and and actually the importance of evidence-based conservation as well. So it was really nice to, to hear that. And so here's Janet talking about this topic. Capacity building has also been a really uh, big part of my work at the University of Maryland, my research group. Um, Actually, um, we are funded by uh, U.S. Agency for International Development, USAID, um, in a um, program called CARPE, the Central African Regional Program for the Environment. And one of our biggest parts um, of CARPE, besides forest monitoring and using satellite imagery to analyze forest change in the Congo Basin, is also capacity building um, for spatial tools and for forest monitoring in the region. And since about 2002, we have been um, working very closely with a group that's coming out of the University of Kinshasa of um, younger uh, geography students who are, you know, really wanting to learn GIS and remote sensing and, and do these, use these tools. And since 2002, we've been um, sort of providing oversight to their group and creating um, a laboratory called OSFAC, which is an acronym in French um, for, for their, um, their group. But they've become now the focal point of GIS and spatial data um, acquisition, satellite imagery distribution for um, Central African projects uh, located in the Congo Basin countries. How important is it getting, I mean, imparting the knowledge and having it done locally? very important. Um, you know, I can lend my assistance to all of these projects, but I live in the United States and I don't speak the local language. My French is just intermediate level or less. So really, the, the people who live in the DRC are the ones who really need to be doing this kind of work and they need the tools in order to solve the problems that are happening in their country. Okay, so this is, a, I think, a good point to uh, say thanks to all of our students who brought up this these important issues surrounding conservation and, and the choosing the clips based on researchers who have been you know, really involved in conservation efforts around the world. It's definitely something that's in the collective consciousness now of all researchers involved in primatology and other, I mean, basically in, in natural sciences. And it's been nice to kind of go back and hear a whole range of topics that have been covered by different podcasts yeah. from... Anecdotes on the ground, Nishihara's case, to public perceptions of endangered animals in the zoo with Steve, and then some of the more um, conservation-based participatory approaches in Africa with, with Janet. So 
Yes, it's been it's been really fun. And um, so before we close out here, we should note that the next segment, next podcast is part two of this series in which we'll be focusing more on the research side Mm -hmm. of primatology. Uh, So about the other half of our students kind of picked podcasts more related to research. So we'll be highlighting some of those clips as well. So just to close this one out, we need to return to the ever wise words of Dr. Jane Goodall to finish out this podcast. That's right. And this clip that we'll play is, uh, I think it was definitely my favorite part of her interview where she kind of sums up her worldview, sort of, and it's, it's kind of, it's very powerful. And then finally, you know, okay, so we can, we can desperately work to study chimps in the wild. We can fight to conserve them. We can fight to conserve the forests. And yet none of this is going to be the slightest use unless young generations are growing up to be better stewards of this planet. You know, it's not just conservation in Africa and other places where the primates live. It's the whole flipping planet. Mm -hmm. And it's the chimps, it's the chimp studies that give me this million dollar question. The million dollar question is, because we're closer to chimps and bonobos than anything else, as a platform to say, okay, but we're different. And what is that difference? Mm-hmm. And, okay, take I and Ayumu as prize examples of how intelligent chimpanzees can be in the right situation. Compare that brain with the brain that sent a robot up to Mars that's crawling around taking photos. I mean, you can't really compare the two. And so the question is, if we are, and we surely are, the most intellectual being that's ever walked the planet, how come we're destroying our only home? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And to me, it's because we've lost wisdom. We make deci- major decisions based on how will this affect me now, or the next political campaign, usually the next shareholder meeting. And it used to be decisions based on how will this affect our people generations ahead. Mm. And that's forgotten for the bottom line, this materialistic life, this crazy search for money and more money and more money. Mm-hmm. You know, and it was Gandhi who said, the planet can produce enough for human need, but not for human greed. So the chimps led me to this question, mm-hmm. to which I had no answer. You have been listening to The Primate Cast, a podcast series dedicated to the study and conservation of primates around the world. Brought to you by the Centre for International Collaboration and Advanced Studies in Primatology of the Primate Research Institute of Kyoto University. Visit us online at www.cicasp.pri.kyoto-u.ac.jp forward slash news forward slash podcasts and follow us on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash the primatecast and on Twitter at the primatecast.